Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. It's designed as an antidote to the big narratives of wars and politicians which dominate history books and which suggest that history has some sort of overall point. The truth is, history doesn't have a grand direction. It wanders around, often drunk, frequently bumping into things and usually eschewing anything that might look like progress for another sustained period in full reverse. So the interesting bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note, perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. Welcome back to episode two of The Interesting Bits. This time we have three stories, including how Gregor Mendel's overlooked book on sweet peas changed the face of biology, and the man who spent a lifetime trying to persuade everyone that he wasn't George Eliot, which he wasn't. But to start us off, 323 years ago, Isaac Newton was taking time off from physics to pursue an old enemy to his death. Isaac Newton is remembered today largely for describing the action of gravity or perhaps amongst more numerate for calculus, although amongst numerate Germans, they'd think Leibniz should really take the credit. But Newton's life was not one of pure abstract research. For 31 years, he had a government job, and this involved him spending an inordinate amount of time in disguise in some of London's livelier bars. Newton was not himself one for the high life. His secretary once commented that he'd only seen the great man laugh once in five years, and that was when someone asked him what the point was in reading Euclid. But following the publication of his great work, Philosophe Naturalis Principia Mathematica, known simply as the Principia, he became a regular government expert, and this led to an unusual job offer. In 1695, the government had a problem that Newton and seven other dignitaries were asked to look into. Britain was at war with France, and hence in a bit of a financial quandary, very much not helped by the fact that her coinage was slowly and quite literally being eroded. The currency in everyday use was made of bullion silver, but had poorly defined edges. As such, clippers would snip the edges off the coins and sell the silver. As a coin was supposedly worth the value of silver in it, this was a problem. Newton and his committee reported back that the only solution was a re-coinage, that is, taking in all the old money and reminting it as new coins worth their actual weight in silver. The government agreed, and the re-coinage began and that should have been an end to Newton's involvement. But the Chancellor of the Exchequer wanted to thank Newton for his work, so he did what all governments of the day did, and he offered him a sinecure, a government job with a salary but no duties, or none that he couldn't get someone else to do. But Newton was not a man to take any job lightly, even one meant to just provide him with a bit of pocket money. He took the job as Warden of the Mint, but, much to everyone's surprise, he also decided to actually do the work. Seizing control of the re-coinage, he determined to beat the clippers. All his new coins would have clearly defined edges, 
and one on which the clipping would instantly be recognised. To that end, all silver coins were to be milled with a series of vertical grooves around their edges. Over this, Newton decided to write an inscription that would not only add to the decorative value of the coin, but prevent the edges being shaved off and hence act as a defence. This legend, which still appears on some UK coins today, was Decus et Tutalmen, an ornament and a safeguard. With clipping in decline, many of its former practitioners turned instead to coining, outright counterfeiting. Technically, the job of Warden of the Mint also involved actually catching these criminals. And so, after some initial misgivings, Newton threw himself into that as well. Clippers and coiners were not the sort of people you'd meet in an evening at his more usual haunt, the Royal Society, so Newton decided to don disguise and hang around London's less salubrious pubs, hoping to overhear their plottings. And overhear them he did. At great personal risk, Newton pursued London's criminal underworld, most notably in the form of William Challoner, a former quack doctor, confidence trickster, and the first coiner to perfect edge-milling on his fake coins. Challoner was a cut above most coiners, even offering his services to the government as the only man who could stop counterfeiting. And he had a point, as if anyone knew how it was done, it was him. Going further, he claimed the Royal Mint, under Newton's control, was riddled with corruption, lending out its dyes and issuing underweight coins, and he threatened to pursue that old dog the warden to the end so long as he lived. Now, Newton was a man whose temper could occasionally get the better of him. In a fit of pique aged just 19, he'd threatened to burn down his mother and stepfather's house with them in it. Not surprisingly, he was apoplectic about Challoner's claim and put all the methodical practices that had aided him in his scientific work to use to set up an extensive network of spies and informers to catch out the ever bolder coiner. By January 1699, Newton had dragged every accomplice and confidant from every era of Challoner's life from every backstreet bar in London. His investigation was complete and Challoner was arrested. The charge was treason, a penalty Challoner himself had exhorted the government to apply to coining at the time when he hoped to become their official expert on the subject. The meticulous Newton had gathered witnesses from throughout the coiner's career who were paraded in court in front of the astonished defendant who decided to conduct his own defence, unaware of the lengths to which Newton had gone. So panicked was Challoner that he tried feigning madness, and when this failed, he was reduced to simply insulting each witness. The result was a foregone conclusion, and he was sentenced to death. In the two weeks before sentence was carried out, he wrote a series of letters to Newton, some abusive, others begging for mercy, his last pitiful note saying, Oh dear sir, do this merciful deed. Oh my offending you has brought this upon me. Oh, for God's sake, if not mine, keep me from being murdered. Oh, dear sir, nobody can save me now but you. Oh, God, my God, I shall be murdered unless you save me. Oh, I hope God will move your heart with mercy and pity to do this thing for me. I am your near-murdered humble servant. A vengeful Newton was not moved to pity, however. Those who had crossed him in the scientific community could have told Challoner that this was not a man to forget a grudge. If even colleagues could not seek forgiveness for imagined academic sins, what chance had a notorious criminal? William Challoner was dragged on a hurdle to Tyburn on the 16th of March, 1699, where he was hanged. As a traitor, he was denied even the right to face his death drunk. 
That December, Newton was granted one of the most lucrative offices in the gift of the state, as Master of the Mint. Mendel's Marvellous Sweet Peas Gregor Mendel was brought up on a small farm in what is now the Czech Republic, but was then Austrian Silesia, and he might have been expected to continue the family farming tradition that was already then over 130 years old. But Mendel was not really like the other farm boys in the area. While every farmer's son had to learn what makes things grow, Mendel had a passion, gardening, and an academic turn of mind which saw him enrolled in the Philosophical Institute of the University of Olomouc. Options for an academic gardener with no money were limited in the Austrian Empire, however, in just about every field but one. One organisation could give a young man the time and resources to follow his dream, regardless of his family background. But it came at a cost. Mendel would have to become a monk. Encouraged by his former physics teacher, Mendel took the plunge in 1843 and became a novice at the Augustinian Abbey of St Thomas in Brunn, now Brno, from where he was sent to university in Vienna, returning three years later as a fully-fledged teacher of physics. But it was plants that still fascinated Mendel, and in his spare time he began to experiment in the monastery garden with crossing varieties of pea plant. At that time, between 1856 and 1863, there was no good understanding of how plants or animals might inherit traits from its father or mother, Indeed, the whole of natural history was in something of a fluster thanks to the publication in 1859 of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life, later known simply as The Origin of Species. Darwin himself was developing the idea of pangenesis, which theorised that the bodies of plants and animals created gemules, particles which contained partial blueprints for creating that creature. These gemules, it was hypothesised, then congregated in the reproductive organs where they were absorbed into the egg or sperm. Mendel, meanwhile, was patiently crossbreeding peas. 29,000 of them in total during the seven years of his study of seven specific pea characteristics. What he found was as simple as it was inspiring. In the case of colour, when he crossed a purple-flowered pea with a white pea, he didn't get any offspring that were blends of the two, as many theories of the day suggested. He always got a purple flower. He theorised that this was because the purple trait was dominant, while the white trait was recessive. So purple always showed, whilst the white trait was still present, but hidden. He then went on to show that each of these factors, purple or white, was carried by only one of the parents. From this, Mendel derived his laws of inheritance which he wrote up as Experiments on Plant Hybridisation, which he then read over two evenings to the Natural History Society of Brunn, an organisation that he'd helped found. One newspaper, the Brunn Tagesbot, reported a lively participation by the audience, but his call in the meeting for others to take up the work was roundly ignored. In 1866, he published his findings in the Society's journal, which was distributed amongst a number of European academic institutions, and he personally forwarded copies to other academics, most of whom also entirely ignored the work. Only one entered into a correspondence with Mendel, and he suggested the monk redirect his work on hawkweed, the plant which can produce seeds without pollen, and so is useless in such experiments. Two years later, 
the diligent Mendel was elevated to the role of abbot at St. Thomas's, and his new administrative duties left him little time for experiment. He died there in January 1884, and most of his papers were burnt. It would be another 16 years before his work was rediscovered, when many of the copies of the paper he had so diligently distributed were found uncut, and hence unread, in the private and public libraries which he'd sent them to. Then, in the shadow of Darwin's monumental work, no one had been bothered with a monk and his peas, and yet within the paper lay the answer to the greatest weakness in Darwin's theory, proof that characteristics don't blend on crossing and that pangenesis was hence wrong. Today, Darwin's natural selection still forms the bedrock of our understanding of how species change, but it is Mendel's peas which form the background of our understanding of genetics. The Other George Eliot Joseph Liggins' secret was unusual in that it didn't belong to him, and he never seems to have claimed definitively that it did. His story begins with the publication in Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine of three stories entitled Scenes of Clerical Life between November 1857 and January 1858. The stories, set in the Midlands and filled with what were clearly personal reminiscences of people and places, were a great hit, and soon readers were clamouring to know more about the author, one George Eliot. What no one other than Blackwoods and a few close friends knew was that George Eliot was in fact Mary Ann Evans, a woman with two good reasons to keep her real identity secret. Firstly, she was a woman in an age when it was extraordinarily difficult for women to be taken seriously by publishers or readers. And secondly, and scandalously for the day, she was living with journalist G. H. Lewis, even though Lewis was still married to someone else. Marianne's decision to hide her identity did nothing to prevent speculation, however, indeed quite the reverse, and that is how Joseph Liggins, perhaps initially quite innocently, appeared on the scene. Liggins was a well-educated but impoverished man, who, after a spell teaching on the Isle of Man, had settled into a life of obscurity in his native Warwickshire, which was, by chance, also George Eliot's home county. Eliot's stories have been particularly popular in this area, as they described the people and places around Nuneaton in such detail that it was assumed Eliot must be a local. And so it first dawned on a reviewer in the Manx Sun, who remembered having met a gentleman from that area who'd worked on the islands before, that perhaps it was him. And so the claim that Liggins was Eliot first went into print in 1857. Two years later, following the publication of Eliot's first novel, Adam Bede, there was a renewed rush to identify the real author as the fame of the novel spread. Now the Manx son was certain it was right and rushed into print to claim Liggins as their man. At this point, Liggins could perhaps have refuted the claim, as he had after the first article, but then that had merely seemed to reinforce the fact that it must be him. Now it was also revealed by the newspapers that he lived an impoverished life, and so it was assumed his publisher had defrauded him of the royalties that so popular a book must obviously have generated. There was an outcry, and several rather self-righteous Midland dignitaries, including vicars and magistrates, denounced Blackwoods. A campaign was started in the letter pages of the popular press for Liggins to be acknowledged as George Eliot, and given his just reward. A subscription was even started to alleviate the hardship suffered by this much-wronged author. 
Initially, Elliot responded with her own letters to the Times, denying categorically that she was Liggins, and her publisher did likewise. But finally, she was forced to act. Liggins had still made no attempt to deny he was Elliot. Indeed, not surprisingly, he was happy to let fundraisers believe he was. And so in June 1859, braving the scandal they feared would follow, Marianne Evans and G. H. Lewis revealed Elliot's true identity. Many were stunned, but the revelation of Elliot's gender and private life didn't damage her book sales at all. The same could not be said for Joseph Liggins, however. He died destitute in the workhouse in May 1872 in Chilvers Coton, the very same village where George Elliot had been baptised Mary Ann Evans 53 years earlier. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by Tian Stewart-Murray. 